Welcome to Next Gen Now with Rudina Ciceri, your inside track to technology, innovation, and the startup world. Rudina bridges listeners with the brain trust of the business world, speaking with early adopters and industry-leading innovators. Each week, she gives you a backstage pass to the people designing, building, and marketing the companies, products, and services of the future. Now, WebmasterRadio.fm presents Next Gen Now with your host, Rudina Ciceri. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rudina Ciceri, partner at Fairhaven Capital, and I invest in early-stage technology startups. You can follow me on Twitter at Rudina11, and for those of you who don't know, that is R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers 1 and 1. I welcome you, our listeners, to this edition of Next Gen Now. Today on the program, we will talk about the emergence of the on-demand economy with the CEO and co-founder of Drizzly, Nick Rellis. Nick, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So maybe we can start with what is Drizzly and what does it do? Quite simply, Drizzly allows you to order your favorite beverage alcohol from a local retailer and have that local retailer deliver it to you in under an hour. So you go on our website, download our app, give us your location. We connect you with a local liquor store. You pick from a wide array of products. And like I said, they'll bring it to you in just under an hour. And is, is this a company that's focused on distribution nationally, or how does Drizzly prioritize its regions, and where are you present today for our listeners? So the company started back in 2012, and at this point, we're in, uh, just launched our 16th market in Dallas uh, with a fantastic chain of about 50 stores down there, focused quite heavily for the past 14, 16 months on doing, just like you said, on expanding our network to build the largest and most reliable network of liquor stores across the country. So you'll see us in probably 25 to 30 in the United States by the end of this year. And I'm curious, uh, Nick, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about your background, but also how does one wake up one morning and say, oh my gosh, I want to build the next company that distributes liquor. That's it. That's my calling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I will say when you when, when talking about raising money, uh, that was often <laughs> a, a point of discussion. How does a, at the time, a, a 22, 23 year old first time CEO get into this business? Well, Nick, uh, I'm a venture capitalist, so please don't ask me to step out of character. I had to ask that question. <laughs> Fair enough. So I, I born and raised in Boston. I, I went to Boston College where I was fortunate enough to, to major in finance uh, and corporate reporting and analysis. Uh, so heavy in financial statement analysis, valuation, uh, forecasting, and was going to head down to Wall Street and was fortunate enough to... Uh, spend some time while I was in school working for a private company here uh, just north of Boston that was uh, it's actually one of the, the largest coffee roasters in the United States uh, you know when I was there this, this company was making hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars working directly under the COO who ran the company and I was doing skew profitability efficiency studies you know looking at the plant layout uh, when you know I came up with it really was it, at the time it was a, I thought innocuous enough question. It's really turned into an obsession, you know, with why technology has been unable to integrate itself with very highly regulated industries, industries like the world of alcohol or or gaming or gambling. You know, it came from a you could call it a naive or um, you know youth being in, in, incredibly clairvoyant, but 
I said to myself, you know, I, I want to be in one of these recession-proof businesses. I think there's something to be said. This is coming out of the financial crisis. For, you know, save business next is alcohol consumption. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and well, that's and that's. I said to myself as a as a twenty two year old, hey, I could, you know, you just carve out your little niche in a world like alcohol, and there you go. You know, but this is this was two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, right around the same time I started using Uber, and so I was in school. You can imagine, given all of this kind of in a pot you stirred around together, it was a late night, an empty fridge. I sent my co founder a text message at two thirty in the morning. I still have the text. We we found it, and I said, hey, you know, Justin, why can't you get? alcohol delivered and his answer to me was well it's because it's illegal and I said well that doesn't make much sense it's, it's not illegal I've seen people do it I think there's just probably a reason why it's not done in more prevalence and so by that morning on, on March 2nd um, the morning of March 3rd uh, we had figured out there was this thing called the liquor code which governs all the laws regarding alcohol in the given state and figured out that, hey, you know, there's actually a quite a legal way to do this here in Massachusetts. And that was our entrepreneurial rabbit hole, if you will. Got it. So um, you touched on a number of issues there. So let's start with the reference to Uber. Do you often get defined in terms of Uber, like the Uber for alcohol? And how do you feel about that, if, if that's the case? The comparisons are oftentimes they're made uh, in the media and they're made for the sake and the ease comparing businesses. Also, you know, for, for investors, right, it's a very quick and easy one sentence way to let someone know what you do. And, and so we're, we're fine with it. You know, if that's what people want to characterize us, that, that's fine. Um, we look at our business very differently internally. Uh, we do not consider ourselves the Uber for alcohol. Uh, and that, is that because it defines you as a narrow, narrower vertical, i.e. purely for alcohol or for a different reason? Well, actually, I mean, when you look under the hood, you know, without getting too much into kind of how it's all made, it's not Uber for alcohol. Uh, when, when you think about Uber, uh, all they're doing is they're taking a series of drivers, uh, you know, be it a taxi driver, an UberX driver, or a black car driver, they're giving them a phone, they're telling them to turn it on when they're... Uh, when they want to start giving rides, and then all Uber does is match supply and demand. Our business involves onboarding liquor stores around the country of various shapes and sizes, of standardizing all of their inventories, you know, of creating an experience that is personalized through recommendation and personalization, and then uh, giving that all to a consumer in a really nice, neat package. So very different businesses, and I think just because both of us facilitate something to your feet from the touch of a button, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that it's as simple as saying, hey, Uber can do this. Well, I, I, quite simply because, well, Uber can't do this in the overwhelming majority of states. And so, interestingly, you're delivering alcohol. What about the risks and liabilities associated with that? Let's touch on that a little bit. Yeah, and, that, and that's, that was kind of my last point there about Uber. One of the laws around the country in, in a lot of the larger states is that a third party can't deliver alcohol, but that it has to be done by a liquor store or W-2 employee. So there's quite a bit of fragmentation when you think about how you try and create this, this framework around the country, this one-size-fits-all framework. You know, when we first started it, going back to the, original, the very first question, when I sent the message back to my co-founder, I said, hey, you know, there's probably a reason why it's not done in more prevalence. Well, we went and investigated that, and we talked to a handful of liquor stores, quite a few here in Boston, and it turns out outside of New York and San Francisco, the overwhelming majority of 
the 45,000 liquor stores don't deliver. And again, not because it's illegal, just because there were about 20 factors that we found uh, that made it so that uh, they said this is not a part of the business. Um, the, the very first one that, that, that everyone said was ID verification mm-hmm. and underage drinking. Uh, and, and most stores looked at this as incremental risk, not incremental profit. Okay. And you know, in, in the way that if you're a liquor store owner, uh, there's a very unnerving very unnerving kind of paradox where every person that walks into your store is someone who's giving you money, but it also is a potential threat. That's a person who's potentially underage trying to buy alcohol. So uh, they take this very, very seriously, and that forced us to create a forensic ID system that we actually give to all of our stores as part of our fulfillment system. Um, We did that in partnership with a company here in Massachusetts uh, to actually... Give, give them a tool to be able to make sure that, that your ID, the document itself, is real. So it, it uses these very secret features that every state has on their particular ID. And that's a, a technology that we actually sold across the country to law enforcement. But what about this at a higher level, the notion that you are driving additional alcohol consumption and making it easier, if you will, for individuals to consume even more? Is there some sort of ethical or judgment issue that you've encountered on, on, with that notion? No, no layups here today, huh? You know. <laughs> no, no beach balls. Uh, well, hey, we got, it's got to be real, no? <laughs> <laughs> You're raising an incredibly important topic, and I think we have an obligation to use data in a lot of different ways. That's why we're starting to work with organizations in the preventative drinking space, preventing substance abuse, as well as preventing underage drinking. We've spent a lot of time and a lot of resources to build this ID system. We're doing the same thing to make sure that we're fostering an environment that's safe and healthy for people to enjoy the joy of drinking uh, that is alcohol delivery. So uh, to answer your point, we have an obligation there, and we're, we're starting to work with organizations that make uh, sure that substance abuse, you know, it, it, doing all, all we can to stem substance abuse. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And in fact, as, as you were speaking, you made me think uh, that the more data there is, the more the verification process becomes safer. Of course, that needs to be balanced with issues of privacy, especially when it comes to substance use. But yes, that makes sense. On that, why don't we take a break? But when we come back, I will continue my conversation with the CEO of Drizzly, Nick Rellis. Next Gen Now will return, staying ahead of the technology curve, after a word from our sponsors. Creating a website is not an easy task, and there are so many companies to choose from. How do I know which one is best? It's a big jump making your site mobile-friendly, generating sales, and answering questions with no struggles. If you want to come out on top, you need Frog on Top. At Frog on Top, we take the time to make your site generate money, not just look good. Our team of experts are WordPress savvy, and our customer service is leaps ahead. See why we say our websites are designed better by leaps and bounds by going to frogontop.com. Frog on Top, your one-stop solution for the web. Frogontop.com. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. 
As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I'm joined by Nick Rellis, and we have been talking about Drizzly and, more broadly, the on-demand economy. So, Nick, let's transition to this interesting notion of the on-demand market or economy versus the sharing economy. They're often used interchangeably, but I know I've heard you speak in the past and you have very, very clear views as to why they're not the same thing. So let's touch on that for a bit. Yeah, you know, I think when we started Drizzly, one of the, part of the real genesis there was the idea of Uber. This is back again in 2010, 2011. The idea was that Uber was bringing black car drivers at the time, more of what they already do. So if you're a black car driver, you give rides, uh, you know, you either might work with the service, you work on your own, work with a hotel, but you're always looking for excess demand because there are times when you're just sitting around. And so the idea that you could use someone's excess capacity and bring them more demand as a tech middleman in terms of a marketplace was really, really interesting. And that's what I consider the sharing economy, right. uh, where you're using excess. So Airbnb right, is as much of a hotel company as Uber is a black car company. Neither of them employs a driver. They don't own real estate. Right. All they're doing is simply connecting people with others that have demand for their excess supply. Does that make sense? Makes, yep. Makes, makes so sense. That's the sharing economy. The sharing economy, I think, can, it's like, you know, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are square. So I think the sharing economy can be on demand, but not all on demand companies are participating in the sharing economy in the sense that the difference between an Uber, an Airbnb, or an Instacart and a Postmates, when you look at how their financial statements, their overhead, their companies are structured, uh, and the unit economics in terms of how they make money from a pure transaction-by-transaction transaction basis, they're very, very different businesses. But by the same token, I, I agree with the premise that Uber and, the, you know, and, the, and Airbnb and the likes started on the premise of there is access capacity, so let's create a facilitating app or infrastructure, software infrastructure to enable that. Today, though, they're not just filling excess capacity, at least in the case of Uber. They have created new categories for delivery, for the transportation, well, even for delivery. So they're probably going to try to encroach in your space, but more, more specifically today for the transportation of individuals. So couldn't one argue that they started on the premise of the sharing economy but have evolved to truly be sort of an on-demand provider of transportation? 
think it's again the kind of the, the all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares discussion. The point is about how the company is structured and how the company makes money. Uber's biggest overhead, I bet, is engineering and legal. It right. is not, uh, you know, cost of goods sold. It is not hiring drivers. So I think they've actually they've come such full circle that they solved the chicken or the egg issue and they've actually created a new one, which is at first they were taking excess supply and trying to get any demand and fill that. Now they have so much demand, they have to go find excess supply, which is how you see them moving uh, kind of more horizontal uh, across different types of offerings. So, I, but again, the cost structure of Uber as a business is still the same. You know, it, it's still a software company's margins where they're making, you know, upwards of 90, 95% gross profit on every transaction. We will see if that model will hold, right? Right now, the drivers, based on this exchange, are probably classified as contractors as opposed to employees. And if that were to change, and there's lots of discussions around what constitutes a contractor versus an employee and how those two lines get crossed all the time, especially by startups, you know, entering the growth phase, one could have a very different view of what the margins for the Uber business, at least the gross margins and the operating margins are, especially if you also account for the fact that Uber is now buying cars for its drivers. So let me, though, sort of jump off of that to pose the question back to Drizzly. Is Drizzly a alcohol delivery company that's enabled by tech or are you a technology company, a software um, company that the ultimate sort of product, first product is alcohol delivery? Am I drawing a sufficient distinction? I think, again, it's a distinction that most people don't make by calling us the Uber for alcohol. I would consider us a tech company. Our investors consider us a tech company in the sense that there's quite a bit of technology in terms of an opportunity sitting out in front of Drizzly well beyond just being an alcohol delivery company as opposed to, like you said, being a tech-enabled infrastructure. Tech-enabled infrastructure is definitely part of what we do. We, we use technology to make delivery more convenient, more reliable, uh, more sophisticated. But at the end of the day, when we look at some of the upstream and downstream opportunities for Drizzly over the next two to five years, uh, it definitely makes us a technology company. Nick, one of to sort of wrap up this conversation, one of the things that I love about you and your co-founder having started Drizzly is the fact that you're local to Boston and you have stayed in Boston. We have seen many, many cases of young entrepreneurs leaving the East Coast, in particular Boston, to move to the West Coast. And that, that has been quite a bit of a concern in terms of the brain drainage, especially around consumer-focused type businesses. Can you sort of recap what your experience has been like here and why have you stayed and why you advocate for young entrepreneurs who are looking to build big businesses, at least to stay in Boston, or not? <laughs> a lot of the so-called consumer exodus, if you will, of consumer companies leaving Boston is self-fulfilling. We harp on it ourselves. I think we, we talk about it, and the more and more we talk about it, the more and more it happens. But you look, there are plenty of, of institutional venture capitalists, uh, including my own. Our funding is, is overwhelmingly from Boston. We actually don't have a West Coast investor. Uh, we have investors from Boston, New York, and Chicago. Uh, there are plenty of, of venture capitalists here in Boston that are focused on consumer. And there are more, and they are starting up. 
every month. There's, there are more funds focused on consumer here. I think now it ultimately it becomes a question of uh, can you find the tech talent? Are there compelling enough consumer businesses to start here in Boston? And, and I think, to be honest, you're going to see a lot of really young companies come out of MIT or, or Northeastern. And those are opportunities for these new venture capitalists to keep people there. So I think Drizzly has played a part in it. There are other companies that have, have played larger parts. But I would say we are slowly shaking off that classification. Ultimately, though, Regina, I think it comes down to consumers. I think it comes down to your ability to start a company and to get adoption in a city like Boston. And that will be uh, the, the question, really, is are there the same amount of consumers as a San Francisco? And is it there the same percentage of consumers like in New York? Because New York just, uh, you know, they really enjoy in the law of big numbers. And now it's time to take another short break. But when we return, we will talk some more with Nick Rellis, CEO of Drizzly, about his experience as a co-founder of a startup company. Stay with us. Next Gen Now will return, staying ahead of the technology curve, after a word from our sponsors. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I'm joined by Nick Rellis talking about Drizzly. So, Nick, let's shift gears a little bit to talk about your experience as a young entrepreneur. You have a co-founder who's also about the same age as you are. How do the co-founder dynamics play, um, especially in such a consumer-oriented and high-visibility business? Drizzly is one of those startups that um, gets a lot of media attention, and most of it generally good. So let's talk a little bit about what co-founder dynamics look like. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's one of the things that you often take for granted but can really make or break a company. Your co-founders need to be complementary. 
Let me think that Justin and I, I laugh because at this point we're like an old married couple and we do very much compliment each other. And in that way, it's not just on a day-to-day basis, but our strengths have complimented each other throughout the process. There have been various stages in Drizzly where we've needed someone like Justin. There have been various stages in our life where we've needed someone like me. And it's not just one stage that goes into the next, but it ebbs and flows back and forth. So, you know, that's the most important thing. I guess when I'm looking at it is finding someone who who really thinks and looks at the world in a bit of a different way than you do comes together and agrees that you know there's a need or a product to be filled or built and that can help you and ask you questions uh, that's going to challenge you in a lot of different ways that's really the most important thing and I think Justin and I definitely don't see eye to eye on everything but what we do know uh, in our heart of hearts and that we've always known over the past three years is that this needed to happen and that we were both going to be willing to do whatever it takes as equal partners at Drizzly to make it happen. And is it driven by trust? Is it driven by a common goal? Um, Is it driven by the desire to make an impact? How does one make this professional partnership, you know, professional marriage, to use your quote, actually work? What do you do in the difficult moments? I talk to, to founders that are a lot more successful than us in, in later stage companies. That I hope that I think they would characterize it this way: that trust is built over time, any good marriage, if you will, and that it's built based off of performance. It's built based off of, and I'm not talking about shares, but I'm talking about equal ownership, an effort, and output. You know, there have been times when Justin has been doing more on a day to day basis than I have, but. Uh, the things that I were doing were longer cycles, uh, required a different sort of effort, and they were things that I had to do. Uh, and so there is that faith and trust and understanding that, that the person next to you, although you might not be sitting face-to-face or side-by-side, that because you're back-to-back, they're going to be doing and turning all the knobs and levers that you are to do everything they can to make the business successful. I think these are things that you learn, like I said, over time. Uh, Justin and I did deliveries together for, for a year. Uh, had done something else before this together. Not a huge project, but uh, enough to allow us to start to to see how each other worked, to enjoy in the results, in the kind of the out, in the performance, uh, and then from there say, okay, again, we were aligned by a common goal. And I I think that that was a lot of it to start is regardless of the difference in our personalities, and there are quite a few. With young co-founders, you know, I've noticed this interesting trend of co-CEOs. That is not the case with Drizzly. You are the CEO. How did you make that determination who would be CEO and who would not? And I think that also that that's part of it. it is, I think if you, if you actually take what I said you know, as, as advice and, and adhere to it, then you won't have that. Because if you have two people whose skill sets are complementary, they will naturally go in different directions. Or you will naturally move in different directions towards different areas of the business. In that way, I, I think a co-CEO is a, is a fairly poor thing to do. I think when you look at big companies, the, the, long run, the long-term success record of co-CEOs is very, very poor. 
Well, and it's interesting because I happen to agree with you on that. And I view the co-CEO title as two partners who don't want to face the difficult conversation of who will truly sit at the helm and who will take the back seat or be the number two or the wingman or whatever the expression may be. And that in and of its own is telling. Although we have some examples that I'm thinking of a company in New York, which at least the market perception is that it's doing very well and they do have two women co-founders who are co-CEOs as well. So we'll see how that plays out in the long term. But I agree with you on that point. Nick, is there any advice you'd like to impart given your experience to date? You raised a seed round, you are in double-digit markets, number markets, and you then again raised a very nice Series A round. If there was any sort of piece of advice that you wanted to impart to young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs broadly who are maybe where you were 12 to 24 months ago, what would that be? Drizzly and Justin and I are very much the exception to the rule. So if you are insistent on, on jumping into starting a company and, and not going and learning from other people, which is something I wish I had done for a couple of years, I would say don't focus on raising money. Focus on building something really compelling that makes money on every single transaction or unit, whatever it is uh, that you do. And when you do that, the money will follow. The, the investors will start to get interested and they will be there for you. But you can't raise money. I look at raising money like throwing gasoline on a fire. Don't go and get the gasoline, take the gas cap off and go build a fire. Because when you do that and you go to look for the gasoline, the tank will have evaporated. You do that once you have a fire and you pour it on and it gets bigger. So start a company and build it for the long term and good things will follow, including financing. Yeah. With that, I want to thank you, Nick, for joining us today. Thank you. I want to thank you, my guest, Nick Rellis, CEO of Drizzly, for joining me, and my great producer, Brasco, for another great show. Of course, I thank you, our listeners, for partaking in this edition of NextGen Now. New episodes of NextGen Now air every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. If there is a topic you'd like for me to cover, please tweet me at rudina11, that is R-U-D-I-N-A, and the numbers 1 and 1. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I look forward to speaking with you next time right here on NextGen Now. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.